Here at Country Roads magazine for 40 years, with curiosity as our guide, we've been wandering the back roads of Mississippi and Louisiana, discovering and sharing Southern culture's most compelling stories. It's a chance to listen closer and discover more. And maybe laugh a little too. I'm James Fox-Smith, publisher. And I'm Jordan LaHaye-Fontenot, managing editor. And I'm Alexandra Kennan, arts and entertainment editor. And this is Detours, a new podcast from your friends at Country Roads Magazine. Hello, and today we're back in the recording studio at the East Baton Rouge Parish Library's River Centre branch, where, for those who don't know, there is actually a fully equipped recording studio available to anybody with a library card. Astonishing discovery. But today we have a guest that a lot of you might find, oh, I don't know, a little familiar? Especially if you're an avid movie watcher. Any Spider-Man superfans out there? Yeah, well, you know, if any of that sounds at all familiar, then you're going to help us to welcome Michael Papajan. This is a man who played the crook in Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, among many, many other roles in movies so many of us have enjoyed over the last few decades. Michael's also produced a few films, and he's working on some big projects of his own here at the moment as well, and all while based right here in Baton Rouge. So I had the great pleasure of meeting and interviewing Michael R. Pop a few months ago uh, for our very first film issue back in November um, 2022. That issue was a lot of fun, gave us a lot of chances to explore our local, very vibrant film industry from several different angles with uh, Papa John. We wanted to kind of highlight the experience of someone who has had great success as an actor and who made the choice to make Baton Rouge his home base. Um, He's also just got a fantastically interesting story, which we are excited to dive into today. Well, first, uh, James, thanks for the intro. And Jordan, thanks for having me. It's uh, really great to, you know, opportunity to talk about Louisiana and my home. And I mean, it's just a full circle story of going to California and then being back in Louisiana. I, I love to tell that story because I'm so happy here. And Yeah. Tell us how you got here. Uh, well, I kind of gotten to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, LSU twice. I, I was actually uh, from Birmingham, Alabama originally. I uh, played baseball at a junior college and uh, Gulf Coast Community College, Gulf Coast State College in Panama City. Uh, call it the Redneck Riviera, but I, I love the panhandle there. And uh, I was able to uh, get a scholarship to LSU and play my junior and senior year. But I mean, it was a long time ago, but um, 86 and 87. And uh, they shot a movie um, in Baton Rouge my last semester at LSU, which I met a director called Taylor Hackford, and I got to stunt double Dennis Quaid. And I wasn't looking to be an actor. I wasn't looking to be a stuntman. And uh, that job opportunity where I had someone pull me off the side and said, hey, Papa John, you're athletic and a good guy. I think you should be a Hollywood stuntman. Uh, That got me out to California. Uh, but to wrap the story up, I was able, after 27 years of being out in California, uh, grinding the business, I was able to move back to Louisiana, and I've been here uh, uh, 10 years. Wow. Um, I want to back up a little bit to your time at LSU as a baseball player, because it was kind of a big, big couple years for LSU baseball, right? Well, we well we did go all the way to Omaha, which is uh, a big deal. It's our first time that uh, LSU's ever been to Omaha, and uh, I was on that '86 team. We we had a great team, and uh, we didn't really know how good we were. I thought at the time, just because it was our first, you know, know, uh, what's the Super Bowl syndrome? You kind of got to go to the Super Bowl before you win it, and. um, it, it was, you know what, I, I, uh, I just look back at those memories and playing for Coach Burtman and playing at LSU, uh, being able to handle that pressure, uh, what Coach Burtman taught about being a team player. And I, I learned so much at LSU uh, that it really, it really grew me for the, uh, the movie business, which really helped out. So um, I'm always thankful for LSU and, and, my, and my relationships there, for sure. Yeah, you've continued to have a friendship with Skip Bertman, right? We talked about that a little bit in our previous interview. Yeah, we, I, we do. I've actually, I've actually been filming him on and off for about five years, uh, just uh, following him around. We go to movies together, and it's not about – a lot of time not about baseball and sports. It's just about life and hanging out with him. He's so interesting. Uh, 
you know, you just when you're around them, uh, I don't know, you just leave being around Coach Burtman uh, feeling good, you know. Michael, I got a question about that. What do you think, um, being both sides of the camera, you know, you've spent a lot of time in front of the camera and you've spent a lot of time behind the camera now. What do you think it is that, what is that quality that makes the camera love somebody? What makes somebody great um, subject? Matter? You know, I, I think, you know, like, uh, just being authentic and, um, imaginary circumstances. And it, I think it has a lot to do about imagery. You know, I mean, everybody works different as an actor. Uh, but it's interesting when you see someone in front of the camera with a uh, set dialogue playing a role, and then you're just interviewing someone uh, and talking about their life or their dog dying or whatever, uh, that imagery and those pauses and moments. And there's a lot of times where nothing is said and you just capture that moment and that vulnerability or that excitement. Uh, I, I go back to um, one of my acting coaches, Larry Moss. I've had some great coaches along the way, but he was always build your biography and he was always big on uh, the imagery of what the scene is and what you're talking about. Okay. Yeah. That's really interesting. Well, um, Back going back on those years. So that first film, Everybody's All American. Can you tell us about that first audition that you got? Uh, yeah, it, it wasn't really an audition. I was just uh, my last semester at LSU. Um, I was able to. Um, uh, I was in the weight room. I was leaving the weight room, and uh, while I was going in the weight room, and I had four LSU athletes that I played baseball with. They were coming out of the weight room, and I asked them where they were going. They go, "Oh, we're going to go uh, meet with uh, Lou Herbert. He's working with everybody's All American, and they're looking for LSU athletes to be part of the football team." And uh, they're doing a movie here. And I go, well, I, I skipped my workout. and I just went with them. And then uh, you cut to where they were looking for LSU athletes to be part that weren't eligible, that were, weren't uh, you couldn't be an eligible athlete and be part of the movie. So they're looking for those seniors or last semester seniors that were football players or baseball players. And I got on that group, uh, Everybody's All-American group. And uh and a lot of things happened from that moment uh, that, that I didn't think were going to happen. I just thought I was going to be one of the players, but it led to uh, much bigger things for me. Wow. And what a great example just of the butterfly effect there with that little moment of serendipity. I mean, you have to have to wonder how different your life would be if you hadn't been uh, heading into the weight room at that particular time on that afternoon. And I think Jordan did a good job in her story of saying something along the lines of, you know, you have to wonder if, if your life would, would be different. And and I got to ask, I'm kind of curious, do you think it really would be? Do you think you would have found your way into the movie industry regardless? Or do you really think that moment changed your life? Well, the moment absolutely changed my life. I never thought about the movie business, never thought about being an actor or stuntman. I was uh, looking at playing professional baseball at the time. And then if that didn't work out, I had a, I had a backup. I was going to be a Converse sales rep, Richard Lipsy. Uh, already pulled me off the side and said, hey, I, I got you. If you want to work the Southeast, you, you have a job. And Converse was a big brand back oh, then. Yeah. And um, and then when that director pulled me off the side, Taylor Hackford, and said, hey, Papa John, you're athletic and a good guy. I think you should be a Hollywood stuntman. Uh, to, uh, to have someone see something in you and then to be able to go to people that I trust, like Skip, and have a heart-to-heart -heart conversation, even before I talk to my parents about it, that, hey, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about doing this. This director across the street thinks I should go to Hollywood and be a stuntman. And since, uh, you know, he coached Mickey Rourke and Andy Garcia in Little League, and he used to always talk about Miami Vice. Really, actually, Coach Bertman was the only person I knew that knew anything about the movie business. So we had a heart-to-heart -heart in his office while he smoked a cigar and and uh, really encouraged me to, to to go go do it, you know? Wow, that's fantastic. And, and so Baton Rouge, I have to say, because for all of your very impressive resume in Hollywood and here, too, the Skip Bertman connection still might be the, the biggest sort of point of cred for a lot of our Baton Rouge audience. So that that's so cool that he was influential in that moment, too. Yeah, he was. He was always there. I mean, over the years, I mean, he came out to California, we went to dinner, uh, me and uh, uh, Miss Sandy and Skip, and uh, he was just always there with a phone call. He always took the phone call. Uh, I got some of my biggest breaks through Coach Bertman, um, you know, even through, um, you know, uh, actually, uh, for love of the game. And I kind of we, we touched on this during the article, but it's pretty amazing that, you know, For Love of the Game was a Kevin Costner movie. And 
I was sending my tape to New York, and to make a long story short, Augie Garrido was a technical advisor on um, on this movie called For Love of the Game, and Augie coached at Texas, and him and Kevin Costner were really good friends. And uh, I just thought, well, maybe Skip knows Augie, and I made that call to Coach Berman. He took my call. I said, Coach, he goes, what's up, Pop? I go, hey, I, I need you to pick up your bat phone, because he always talked to – he said he always used to call it his bat phone – I go, do you know Augie Garrido? He goes, yeah, I know Augie. And I go, well, here's what's happening. I just sent my tape to New York. And he goes, uh, I'll give Augie a call, no problem. And, you know, four or five weeks later, I checked in the Waldorf story for seven weeks. And that was all because of Coach Bertman's call. And uh, the tail end of that story was that's where I met Sam Raimi. And I did For Love of the Game. And then two years later, I was able to do Spider-Man and Kill Uncle Ben with Great Power Comes Great Responsibility. But that was all through that Coach Bertman connection. And I always told Coach, I go, Coach, you got me more work than any manager or, or agent in California. And he goes, what do you mean, Pop? I go, well, it, well, I didn't have to pay you a commission either. <laughs> he goes, we need to talk, you know. Yeah, you might still owe him a percentage yeah. about now. I don't yeah. know. Right. A little little power goes a long way, doesn't it? Um, well, so uh, here's a quick question. What Tell us about those first few years in Hollywood. I mean, everybody in the rest of the universe grows up with a notion of what Hollywood is like, and I'm absolutely sure it's not anything like that. So tell us about those first few years and – a few favorite yeah. memories and projects from that time. Yeah, James, that's a great question because a lot of people watch Academy Awards and watch the red carpet, and, and that's all great. But there's a lot of people grinding out there. There's a lot of desperation there that's very competitive. Um, I, I just remember, um, I don't know, I just, I, I always took Alabama with me, Birmingham. I always took LSU with me. I was never going to do anything that would uh, represent that in a negative way. I felt like I had a responsibility. I'm not saying with great power comes great responsibility, but I had a responsibility to make good choices. And uh, I know I'm emotional now talking about it, but it takes you back when you're 22 and you're hustling and you're doing extra work on Baywatch, making $40 for eight hours. You know, if you get in the water, the cold water, they give you an extra $10. If you bring your surfboard, they give you an extra wow. five. If you rollerblade, they give you an extra 10. And the reason I know this, because I did it, you know, I'm the first one to go in the water. But you talk, take, taking me back to those first two years, I really, being a team player, and I jumped in on this stuntman softball league, and I met a lot of people really fast. And they, they, they knew I wasn't a jerk and I was athletic. So I was able to, I felt like, get some warp speed breaks. And uh, being a team player always helped that I, I learned at LSU. It was never about me. I, I was just going to give 110%, let the chips fall where they're going to fall. But those first two years, I have so many stories of just, you know, being Bruce Willis's photo double in Moonlighting, you know, where I was probably making $80 for 10 <laughs> hours. But uh, the, the raise went up. But, but that whole thing of doing extra work and background work and um, – background work on commercials but it put me on a set uh, i really learned set etiquette and then uh uh i, I love telling the background extra work uh because uh and i did a lot of yard work <laughs> i mean I, one of my biggest connections out there was a guy named alan blumquist he was a line producer on everybody's all american and uh, when I moved out to California, I needed to work. He goes, well, you can come do some yard work for me. And and I did yard work for him for a year uh, on and off. But I really got close to him. And he really was always there for me also and gave me some great advice uh, along the way. Were there a lot of times during those early Hollywood years before the work really started to be more than, you know, 40 bucks here, 10 bucks for getting in the water, whatever it is. Do, is there, do you remember there being a lot of times where you were like, what am I doing here? You know, it's like, is there, is there any point at which you were tempted to be like, you know, all right, this was an adventure, but I want to, I'm going to, this has been a good adventure, but I think it might be time to go home. Go sell Converse shoes. Go sell Converse shoes. Right. Whatever <laughs> yeah, it is. The, yeah. The, there are a couple, couple stories that I felt like quitting, you know, of course, uh, there's just one where I was an extra on this job and, 
you know, I had to lay down in mud and it was a rain scene and, and I was doubling another stuntman. I wanted to be where that stuntman was, but I was his body type. So I got hired to lay down in the mud and then they threw rain on top of it. And, uh, and the mud was kind of like made out of manure too. So it wasn't a Man, great, stop it. You're uh, making it sound too glamorous. Really? <laughs> it was a movie called My Favorite, but I got about 40 bucks for that one. And, but I asked the uh, PA production assistant at the time, Hey, can I I get a stunt bump, you know, because I understood stunt adjustments. And and then he goes, well, we don't give those on this show. And I go, I just laid face down in manure in the rain and you don't give adjustments. I've never even told that story before. But those are, you know, I remember on a pay phone right, oh, right in, on Sunset Boulevard, right in front of that rock and roll club. I wish I knew the name off. Of, it's a famous rock and roll club. Uh, and I was talking to my buddy and I had I was cleaning manure out of my ear. <laughs> and and uh, those are one of those times uh, where I wanted to quit. And and uh, and and I had an audition one time on the Sony lot where I was reading for a baseball movie that Tony Scott was directing. And uh, so a director Ridley and Tony Scott are uh, really great directors and Tony passed on. But um, I just had a really bad audition and I was walking down the steps thinking uh, that, that I, I was going to quit. And. I don't know. I just always had actors and other artists that we supported each other. Uh, but the feelings are real. You know, they, they really are. So, uh, but, uh, you know, I cut to being 58 years old, living in Louisiana, still doing what I love to do. And those moments just fly by so fast. You know, I have the imagery right now of it, talking to you. But I also think about through the article with Jordan, uh, it really made me really think about all the people that helped me along the way. And that's always, uh, it's always great to acknowledge that. And uh, I think everything does happen for a reason. You're right where you're supposed to be. Like I'm right where I'm supposed to be right now. But a lot of times it doesn't feel like that. Like, can I, be I believe, you know, so there's, you know, that's kind of where I'm at in life, you know. Yeah. yeah. Nobody does it on their own, do they? No, that's really true. Right. That really struck me in our interview. Um, how you take the time to you you've really appreciated the people who helped you get here and remember their names and like those special moments with them is like something that I found really compelling and admirable about your story is that you you have these these people who have helped you get there and um, make a point to make sure that you keep them in mind as you go forward. Uh, yeah, well, um, especially in an industry like that where you have people from all over the world coming to Los Angeles. And a lot of people want the quick McDonald's, you know, fast food, give it to me now. And uh, that kind of weeds out people really fast unless they know someone or less the, you know, uh, I've, I've seen, of course, uh, people uh, when you have someone already in the industry. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I've always never, I've always asked for things, but I, I earned to ask for them. You know, that's one thing that uh, I would like call, calling up Coach Burtman. I've, I knew that relationship was not just from playing with him in uh, 86 and 87. Uh, it was the 10 years before that that we stayed in touch. And I would come to LSU and go by his office and see him. And, and, um, but there's one thing that I, I want to just mention about LSU, like, and I've never told this story is that uh, when they won their first national championship in the 90s, uh, Coach Burtman and his coaching staff called up the, all the old players from the 80s and flew us in. And we were there at the banquet, the national championship banquet. And he was there to acknowledge us uh, and flying us in. I, I know my bank account at the time and to be able to f have my LSU fly me in and be there with my former teammates and also with the players that just won the national championship – he really put together a great fraternity that I continue to think that still lives in being part of uh, LSU athlete. But there's something about the players now. You didn't have to play with that player to have a, a bond with them. You know, a lot of these players are from out of state. They come into LSU and they marry a Louisiana woman and end up staying here, you know, which is Funny not a bad how that deal. happens. What's that? <laughs> Funny how that happens. Oh, that's that's you, James? Oh, James yeah, absolutely. I, what number were you when you played at LSU? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now you're really making me laugh. Um, yeah, no, I, 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 I'm an English major following another English major. That's what got me here. No, I thought that accent, we were just working on a part. Well, yeah, yeah. Learned it from a learned it from a YouTube video. No, no, no. 
Australian born and raised, just been here 28 years. So old habits die hard in that. Luckily, it, it, an Australian accent turns out to be a pretty good substitute for talent, knowledge, <laughs> experience. So they've been kind enough to find a home for me one way or another. I've been happy here for a long time. Louisiana can do that to you. It, it, it really can. I, I know there's a, the food and the passion and um, people just invite you in here and and they want to they're just great hosts they they really are from their heart and very very passionate and so uh, true it really is really true yeah. yeah it really does draw people and and while we do eventually want to get back full circle to you may able to return here as the industry returned here i would like to first hear a little bit more about your transition from a stuntman to an actor i mean you've told us about some of these kind of rough early experiences you know where you're lying face down in the mud and and you're doing what you need to do to get the work and you're you're working as a body double in positions like that when did that story trajectory start to change for you? You know, what would you say was kind of the the moment, if there was one particular moment or maybe moments where you thought, okay, I'm getting where I want to be in this career now? Um, well, getting where you want to be, that's a tough one, you know, sure. uh, uh, meaning I, I've never felt that, actually. Uh, I had some breaks. Uh, I think the moment that you just asked me was when I was doubling Adam Sandler, Adam Sandler on Waterboy. And I'm real proud of that job. Uh, uh, was, uh, you know, that was 34 at the time and Bobby Boucher and the way that movie has just had a life of its own, especially back in Louisiana. And, uh, I, I had, I got hit, I was doubling them and I got hit on a certain play. I wasn't supposed to get hit on. And, uh, I remember just spitting my mouthpiece out in the grass and my face was in the grass. And I just had this moment of uh, getting that wind knocked out on me. And, and I wasn't supposed to be hit at that time. And I got pissed about it. And I said, hey, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I've had enough of this. I'm going to move my mouth and make money. And it was just a mindset of, I don't know, something happened in that moment. And then uh, a sailor uh, about a month after that said, hey, Papa John, you know, We'd love for you to come on and be my stunt double. You know, we had that conversation. I said, Adam, I'd really, uh, I'm looking at raising some money in Alabama and doing an independent film. I'm going to focus more on acting. And I said no to that relationship at a time where if you're a stuntman and you have an opportunity to, uh, you know, double an A-lister, that's kind of either that or be a stunt coordinator. Those are the top things. Or a lot of times stunt coordinators want to direct, and I understand that. But I said no to that, and um, and then a year later I got for love of the game. So I, I think if I would have taken that opportunity, I wouldn't have got for love of the game, and wouldn't have got Spider Man. I wouldn't have that Coach Burtman story. Uh, so there's something about saying no to things when they might just be, you know, it's it's not it's uncomfortable, but it's kind of like I always uh, when I talk to Jordan, I really, you know, I work from my gut and my heart, you know, and and I and I said no and. And now we're talking about that moment. But that, that, that was the, you know, I did some acting before that, but it changed my mindset on studying who I was going to study with, looking for the best and doing exactly what Coach Bartman told me. Whatever you decide to do, look for the best mentors and coaching. And that's what I, that's what I really try to do. Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate that you continued that as when you became an actor as well. You know, you didn't just try and dive into auditioning. You really put in the time to learn the craft from from true masters. And that shows. Uh, yeah. And, and there's uh, a lot of stories along the way where you're insecure and, you know, you're 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 working through it. And it is important to have uh, people that uh, a team around you, a good team. And I'm big, big on that because uh, you're always trying out. And uh, there's a lot of ups and downs, and we go back to the red carpet and the Academy Awards. There's a lot of there's a lot of other things that are going on in in the industry. But I also love the crew. You know, I love being on a movie set uh, because it's not just about the actors and the stuntmen. It's a lot of people that make it work, and and that's what's really cool about being in Louisiana. I get to see these local people make a living in a, a real you know, competitive business that didn't have to move out to Los Angeles, didn't have to go to New York. And that makes me feel really, really great, you know? Well, actually, I wanted to ask about that because, I mean, a large part of the last 15 years of Louisiana has been, for the film industry, has been trying to grow a homegrown industry, right? Build it right here as opposed to having a situation where Hollywood just parachutes in what they need, take advantage of the set, 
but then pick it all up and take it back away. And the economic and long-term impact of that is a lot more limited than when you've built the Celtic Studios, the, the local the local support network. Can we talk a little about that and where do you think Louisiana is and how Louisiana has done in that area of growing a homegrown industry here? Um, I love to talk about it because it really goes back to Taylor Hackford again, someone that gave me a break in the industry, a director that saw something in me that pulled me off the side. And uh, he, I found out in the early 2000s, he really spearheaded the, he loved Louisiana, loved the music, uh, Ever since he did Everybody's All-American with Dennis Quaid and John Goodman, I mean, he came back and did other films. But in the early 2000s, I heard he really spearheaded uh, getting something at Tulane and UNO where they were starting to train crew people so they could build an infrastructure on handling a tax incentive and handling the movie business coming to Louisiana. And I heard he was really had a lot to do with that. He loved storytelling. He loved film. And he saw Louisiana and... uh, uh, Rio, his, his son passed on, but Rio had a club in New Orleans. His uh, his ex-wife lived in Fairhope. So he had this southern connection. But back to he saw something in Louisiana, and especially I saw something in 2012 when I came back and I, I was around these crew. And I just um, I just saw the California folks mix in with the Louisiana folks. And in my short 10 years here, I've seen people make warp speed breaks and they don't even know it because uh, I I know what California was like, and I've seen them build these credits and the way they work. And I, I think there's something about um, learning, even if it's a California, someone in New York that's been around the movie business. I've just seen people have those relationship skills where they may not know it, but they're willing to learn it and, and have a good attitude about it. And they've been able to look at their strength. And what I do also like, I like that production assistant that shows up on the set. And then I see them three or four years later in costumes or makeup or wardrobe and loving it and being in the union. That's, that's really cool. Right. So you're watching somebody who is homegrown and he's keeping that here and building a life and a, and a career here, advancing through the industry and making their own, making their own name. Yeah, I, I I just worked on Rebel Ridge with uh, Don Johnson, and it comes out on Netflix. And I just had a, a camera guy. I wish I knew his name. I don't know his name, but I shot a video of him acknowledging Coach Burtman. He came up to me and goes, hey, Pop, you play baseball at LSU, right? I go, yeah, yeah, I did. I thought he was going to talk about LSU sports. He goes, man, I went to the Skip Burtman baseball camp when I was 12, <laughs> and I learned so much that he looked behind me, and he was – in charge of this huge camera crane that is worth a lot of money and he has a lot of responsibility and he goes, I wouldn't be doing this right now if it wasn't what I, what I learned and skip Burtman's baseball camp. And he never played college baseball. You know, he, he just plugged what he learned. It's amazing what nine, 10, uh, you know, uh, what's the saying? Uh, show me, a uh, show me a boy at seven. And I'll show you the man, uh, what things can, um, uh, that that young where they can get influenced by something that can carry on in life, you know. Yeah, yeah well, that's really good to hear. Um, you, so about going back to the when you made the transition, right, from stunting to acting, um, you were, you got typecast as like kind of thug characters or law enforcement, police. Like, talk about that. Like when you when you st- start to initially make that make your way and make a name for yourself. Do you get to choose what what people see in you as an actor or do they like, yeah, you're the bad guy in this scene and you're like, okay, this is what I this is what I'm going to inhabit. It's, can you talk a little bit about how an actor's type becomes developed? Well, I'm looking for a strength. What in a very competitive business, where's a niche that I can find for myself? So, um I learned early on, I got a trophy that said World's Greatest Hitman from Taylor Hackford in 87. Uh, World's Greatest Hitman. Well, I was a stuntman. I went out there, I did a lot of football hits, a lot of sports films. And then that hitman came up again when I started getting into acting and training in acting. And I met a man named Larry Moss. It totally changed my life, not only uh, my career as far as an actor and walking on a set and having ownership for the part you're playing. 
uh, and having pride and uh, just a lot of a lot goes into your first day of walking on the set. I, it feels like the first day of school. I got the nerves and you're just waiting in your trailer and you're waiting to call your name. And uh, but I went to the uh, Larry saw something in me in a private lesson and said, hey, Pop, uh, have you ever uh, read Othello? And I go, no. He goes, you don't know anything about Shakespeare? I go, I don't know nothing about Shakespeare. He goes, you need to check out Iago. You, you got a uh, nemesis in you, and I think you could really do something with it. And so I studied Iago for two years with Larry Moss and did a bunch of different scenes. And uh, But that's... I developed that hitman type role mixed in with the action actor where I could handle my own stunts. And it, it really, it, it really, really paid off for work, led to more work. And then when I got Spider-Man, it just opened up all these bad guy roles where I was getting roles were not even auditioning. I had directors that were like McGee that just knew me, saw me in a movie and I worked with him once and on uh, Charlie's Angels. And he brings me back for Terminator Salvation. You don't, you don't have to audition. I just want you to be coming to New Mexico. And that's the first time I ever saw Christian Bell. Uh, Christian Bell walked in the trailer and he was dressed in all black and he was walking in character. And I go, I want to be on his team, you know, <laughs> but it's cool. It's cool to tell stories like that because um, I, did, I, did being Christian Bell hang out? No, but I got to see a star handle how he played that role and uh, with his wardrobe and the way he carried himself. It was pretty damn cool. You know, so Shakespeare turned you into a movie villain. Uh, well, that's pretty good. That's that's pretty good credentials, I'd say. Well, it's not like I went up to Broadway and did Shakespeare, but I did do the fundamentals uh, to prepare me for uh, those roles. And even like um, Spider-Man, the carjacker, I never I really worked hard on that role. I, I wanted to come in there. I didn't want to come in there like a gangster that uh, uh, put the money in the bag and, and have the gun and act like the good fella. I wanted to be down and out, down and out. And I was down and out and I needed that money. And I just built that biography of the vulnerability around it. And um, I'm really proud the way. Well, I felt a lot of pressure, too, because then I realized how important these comic book stories are, <laughs> you know, and, and I learned a lot about that, of uh, trying to, uh, even on Selma when I played uh, Major uh, Major John Cloud, I was playing a real person. So I don't know, there's a little more responsibility there for me when I would play someone like that. Yeah. One of my favorite stories that you told me was um, from our friend, which was a little more recent, and how you met the onco oncologist that you were playing or you met an oncologist is that right yeah, yeah. uh yeah so uh, our friend um it's on amazon or, or netflix or one of the plat i'm real uh, i'm real proud of that movie just because um uh casey affleck i'm a huge fan of his and uh 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 there's uh the director um i just went blank on her name and I, and I know her name but uh when you get in sometimes these interviews you kind of forget but uh, uh the opportunity to work on that and go to fairhope alabama and um never play a doctor, an oncologist. So I, w I met with one in uh, Baton Rouge and she gave me this book to listen to, uh, audiobook Breathe, which was this doctor that had cancer that passed on. And uh, she just gave me some tips and it just gave me confidence to walk on that set and try to be in that person's shoes. Uh, and all actors have different ways of doing that, but that's, I like to kind of go toe to toe and kind of talk about it and, uh, and go from there. Wow. That is so illuminating to hear how you empathize with those characters, because that's something I was going to ask is today is obviously my first time meeting you, though I, I feel like I've known you a little bit just from reading and editing Jordan's story. But you seem like a very friendly, gregarious, nice dude. So the fact you get typecast as these villains isn't something that I would have necessarily guessed. But but the fact you're able to still empathize with them, though, and bring that vulnerability is so important. And I'll add, t uh, Alex has some experience as an actress herself. Oh, so okay. she my, my background is in live theater, yes. so I know what you said about finding truth in imaginary circumstances really is, I mean, one of the most important tenets of any kind of acting, stage, screen, whatever. So the fact that you apply that and kind of live by that so truly, it, it's reflected in your work. Absolutely. Well, uh, live theater, just so Larry Boss, I go back to Larry and uh, The Intent to Live uh, is a book he wrote, but he loved theater and he, he you know, I, I never, I never was a theater guy that did a lot of theater, but I took in as much theater as I could. So when I was doing for, for Love of the Game, I was, uh, you know, Waldorf story for seven weeks. I repeat the story, but I got to see so much Broadway and off-Broadway theater. And, and it just really moved me 
uh, on moments, uh, uh, destination, how to handle props, uh, just watching how professional they were. Uh, and then those moments, maybe where there wasn't dialogue, but God, you felt that moment. You know, so that's when a writer writes dot, dot, dot. He writes dot, dot, dot for a reason. And Larry's, you better fill it in with something. So uh, there's a, an honor the writer. So when you finish that theater performance or that movie, you sign off on that role and uh, with your signature. And I, I've just never been a hack. Uh, I've, uh, I've, uh, there's some roles where you, wrote, you show up, you got to prepare more for. And, uh, you know, Spider-Man, I didn't have a lot of dialogue in it, but I did prepare to run different. Uh, uh, my body language, um, my teeth. Um, I, I haven't really talked about, uh, you know, just the wardrobe, you know, going through wardrobe. It's, I'm always excited. Yeah, tell us about that. I think people would be really interested to know about how, how an actor goes through the process of transforming into the character that you understand yourself to, to be. Well, that's what's beautiful about being around. Even for me to say I'm an artist, I am an artist. I, but it's being an athlete and you know, it's kind of hard to say for a while, you know, like, God, I'm really an artist because I've got this camera here and I've been filming people for 30 years. And I think I'm a documentary filmmaker. <laughs> I've never made any money doing it, but I'm doing something arty, you know. <laughs> uh, um, um, I, I just, uh, well, what was your question? I'm sorry. I just had to go. Oh, it's just like how, how you transform yourself you, through wardrobe into, oh, yes. uh, into the character that you're inhabiting. Well, I, I love wardrobe. I love going to wardrobe because... You really, you got the job, you know, number one, the job is not going to go to someone else or last second, hey, we decided to go with someone else. You're in wardrobe and you're going to a fitting. And when you put clothes on yourself that just fit and you talk to a costume designer about, should I wear a hat? Uh, God, these shoes are so cool. I like feel good or whatever. When you start finding things that just feel good on your body, can it's amazing how it can change a role you know, or, or a certain type of prop added with the costume. Uh, you know, I, I always, I love talking about it because I, I know what I was like when I was seven, eight, nine years old and it's Halloween and uh, I was so excited. And what, what am I going to be this year? But those are big moments. Halloween was a big, um, uh, you know, big holiday for me as a child. It goes back to seven, eight, nine. Uh, well, I, I would feel like that, even though I'm in my late 20s, 30s, and I'm going to a wardrobe fitting on the Paramount lot. And I'm going, damn, man, I'm on the Paramount lot. You know, this is really, really cool. And I get a, I'm going to wear this in this film. But uh, but um, I love the way the costume designers also handle their job and they come in and give you uh, they really talk about it. I bet uh, I bet Hollywood has really good Halloween parties. The costumes would oh, be you awesome. Know it. It? <laughs> no, uh, Louisiana does too. These these well, these, these makeup and hair and cost they're, they're everybody's in there's a lot of artists in Louisiana. Yeah. They they really this uh what's this place right down here, they do a pretty good job. Uh the thirteenth gate, I'm oh, sure. You're right. <laughs> they do. Yes. Yeah. That that makeup and costumes is important for sure. You know there's plenty of those actors working at the thirteenth gate every year that, you know, take film jobs where they can as well and, and use that as kind of a side hustle on the off season. That's true. That's uh, a lot of people don't understand the side hustle, and it, it it's uh, it's a part of the business, you know, where your parents are going. You know, you need to stay in college. You know, well, maybe not. Maybe I got this in my heart, my gut. I want to do this. And uh, uh, in acting class, I, I noticed a lot of students that were studying at the time. Their parents weren't supportive in what they were doing. You know, because they would talk about that in critiques. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I, I don't know why I went off on that. I just um, uh, it just made me think about those times in class where I, I was, you know, I saw Charlize Theron walk in her first acting class ever, you know, wow. uh, uh, from South Africa. And she was looking for a teacher to study with. And um, I saw those moments. And then I saw a lot of great actors that were very talented in class, never, never do anything with it, you know. Uh, but I, I studied with uh, Roy London, was a, a very famous acting coach. He passed on. And then I studied with a lady named Ivana Chubbick. And then uh, then I met Larry Moss. So I have um, – uh, there's Margie Haber. I, I like talking about my teachers. There's a teacher I love, Tim Phillips. Uh, so there's teachers along the way that um, – you know, John Goodman lives in Louisiana now. Uh, really good friends with John. I met him on Everybody's All-American. But I got to uh, – when I was out in California, I got to work on the babe with him and 
And I was in a trailer with him and I flew to Chicago. And it was one of my first dialogue parts. I just rolled into this story, but it was a very, uh, at that time, I told John that I wanted to be an actor. Uh, and he was the first person I said, John, I, I really liked his acting, you know, uh, and then he was right off the top. He goes, you can do it, Pop. You got to make it your toolbox. You can steal from other people, study with different people, but whatever works for you, just make it your toolbox. And I've always remembered that. But I remembered his enthusiasm once I said, I, I want to act. And then he goes, you can do it. And then he kind of gave me his tips. Yeah. Coming from somebody like John Goodman, that that advice has got to go a long way. Yeah, it does. And uh, I got to see him uh, marry uh, a, a woman from Louisiana oh, yeah. that he met yeah. uh, on Everybody's All-American and, and make his home in Battery. And I know he travels and works a lot, but I've been able to see him on and off and uh, to see his passion and his hugs. And he's just um, he's he's uh, he I don't know. I don't, I don't spend a lot of time with him. We don't talk a lot, but I guess it's those times where you have conversations with people where you're made insecure about something or trying to go to that next level. And then you have someone tell you something that, um, you, you fall back on when you're maybe struggling, like, am I really supposed to do this? Well, Goodman said I could do it, you know, yeah, that, whatever it might be. It betrays a real generosity of spirit, doesn't it? From somebody as successful as he has been. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, generosity is a, a huge word yeah. and you can tell actors and stuntmen and, crew, the ones that are generous, you feel it. And uh, I, I didn't, you know, my, my parents got divorced when I was like, I don't know, seven, eight years old. And it was interesting uh, being from that. I'm talking about that is because when I was playing baseball at LSU, it felt like family, that locker room is family. And then you're not playing anymore. And then you're out in California and you don't have the family there. And then you show up on a movie set. And then you show up on a movie set and then you start recognizing people from other movies. Where do I know you from? I know I worked with you before. And then it, 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 it filled a hole in my heart being on a movie set. It was more than acting. It was more than getting this cool role. It was like, damn, man, I feel, I feel a lot of love in the house, you know, felt good. And they and they feed you good too. Yeah, so. I, <laughs> absolutely crafty keeps keeps the good stuff coming at all yeah. hours of the day and night. Yeah. It seems, yeah. Well, and that's something we wanted to ask a little bit about as well. Is you know, I mean, it's incredible you were able to find this sort of connection and this experience of of family out in Hollywood on film sets. What was it like coming full circle back to Louisiana? We just talked a little bit about how John Goodman also has made the transition, you know, from his Hollywood career, now lives back in Louisiana. You clearly have made that transition back to Louisiana. Do you, do you find that that you get that kind of warmth and that friendliness in Louisiana film sets as much or more than Before you answer that, I why don't we I'd love to um hear you talk about what made you come back? Like what made you make that decision to come back um home? Or not really home. It's not really. It wasn't even your home quite then. So what made you want to come back to Baton Rouge? Well, I, um, it was 2010, and I was doing a movie in Shreveport uh, called Drive Angry with Nicolas Cage. And my producer buddy, Johnny Martin, uh, was a stunt coordinator also. I just had people come visit me on the set. That was before COVID, and you could have friends come up to the set. And I had a lot of teammates come up and say hello to me, and a lot of people I went to LSU with. And he saw people coming in and out, giving me a hug and saying hello, and and we'd grab a bite to eat or whatever. And then that's when he went up to me and said, hey, Papa John, man, you know so many people here. You should really think about moving to Louisiana with these tax incentives in place uh, and your quality of life. He mentioned quality of life to me. and. It took me a couple of years to kind of wrap my head around it. Could I really come back here? And do I, I don't know, it's just, a, do I, I think I need to be in Hollywood, you know? But um, then when I was able to do another movie here in, in 2011, uh, um, uh, another a project in Shreveport, I, I it just kind of clicked. I said, I'm, I'm going to make the move. And then I started, my wife uh, got online and we found a house and uh, we, the house we leased, we ended up buying. Uh, it's in uh, a mile from Tiger Stadium. And uh, that was uh, in 2012. So it was, it wasn't like I go, we were going to move. I had a, a lot of people, I couldn't wrap my head around it. And I finally did. And it's the best thing I've ever done because, um, you mentioned something about the crew. I just want to touch on uh, 
I remember taking some banana bread. I, I bit some banana bread. I ate this homemade banana bread on the on the set, and I go, "Who made this banana bread?" I mean, it blew any kind of craft service I had out in California. And the guy came up and said, "Oh, that's my that's my uh, mom's recipe." I go, "Man, this is so good," but it was a lot of Southern love in there, you know. And he was really proud about his banana bread, and it was being on a set, but that family type feel, and then. The Southern folks coming in with the food and the passion. And if what I noticed, too, is if uh, someone didn't know exactly if they were green in an area, uh, what I noticed is people were uh, open to learning and other people were open to teaching because there was this um, this, this this thing. A lot more movies were coming in and a lot of people, I think, were thrown in departments that they were new at. And, and I'll really watch them grow fast and um I don't know. Yeah, you know, it's something about a movie set of generosity, which goes back to uh, actors being generous, to a director, to a producer being generous. To you start feeling that generosity, and it uh, really uh, it makes for uh, not only in front of camera but behind the scenes very special. Maybe um, something. I don't know, Jordan, that you'd wanted um, to ask Pop about the documentary work that he's going on now, and I should. Yeah, I mean, definitely not steal you'd... that thunder. That's that's your question to ask. Well, yeah, I got just, a follow-on question. You and I talked a long time about your work, and uh, I wanted to ask if there was anything that you felt you could share with us today in the studio about what you've been working on recently, and um, anything people should be kind of looking out for. Well, I, I've been uh, my uh, acting coach Larry Moss. Uh, I met Nick Broomfield. On Third Street Promenade, Nick Broomfield's a very famous documentarian, and I didn't know I was going to be a documentarian. Uh, I just knew that I was going to Vidiettes, this video store, and and Santa Monica. This is with the VHS tapes, and it was a real artsy place. Yeah, was, old school, right? Yeah. Oh, old school, and I was getting all kind of these VHS tapes on actors and all these great stories. And then I fell. I just started watching Nick Broomfield. Uh, uh, his 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 documentaries, and uh, I saw him on Third Street Promenade, and I go, Nick Broomfield. He goes, Yeah, what's up, mate? Uh, I go, Man, I've been watching your uh, watching your documentaries. They've you know, I just acknowledged him. He he, I was the only one on Third Street Promenade that knew who he was, but it was just that moment that I met him. And the reason I tell you that story, I cut to. Uh, have I sold a documentary yet? No, I haven't. But I sure have been filming a lot of uh, my family, uh, just carrying a camera with me along the, this 25-year journey of having these different cameras and capturing a lot of things. And where I'm at now is uh, I just love this documentary world, the docuseries, Unscripted. And then you bring in Louisiana with all these opportunities, with all these stories uh, where I'm I'm at the place now for, uh, for I've really been working hard the last four years. Uh, but before that, I, I have a lot of content that we're putting in uh, sculpting stories. And I have a producing partner that I was actually in Larry Moss's class with. And I have an editor here in Baton Rouge. It's a real close friend of mine. And we I just got a good team around me. And we're we what we do is we we develop a deck and a sizzle reel. So I'm not spending three hundred fifty thousand dollars on a 90 minute documentary, which is nothing wrong with that. I'm more looking at how do you build a trailer and a deck and present this story to the Hollywood folks out there and say, hey, uh, looking for producing partners to jump on board to finance it and go above the line and have a percentage of your content and then leave some great stories behind. So one season could possibly turn into a two, a three or a four season. Gotcha. So, so yeah, I, and my follow-up question to that was, um, do you envisage or as far as those documentary goes – Will Louisiana, for lack of a better way to ask it, be a character, or will the, will Louisiana be a presence in these productions as you see it? Oh, it's going to be a presence, a presence with the heart and and uh, I think uh, uh, you know it's Bobby Boucher is from you know he's yeah uh, Bobby Boucher and Harold Perkins. I know Harold Perkins played football at LSU. The reason I bring up that is they're the two best linebackers in Louisiana. It was a joke on Twitter, uh, uh, but it's that's high comedy. And then when you start picking up a camera, and then you start feeling uh, you start start filming moments, and 
Um, you know, I have an independent wrestling story that I've been following someone that that uh, I, I, that underground world that a lot of people don't know about. Um, I'm interested in hyperbaric oxygen therapy because uh, I, I dealt with some concussions in my life through doing stunts, and that helped me out a lot. And my journey with healing myself while I was keeping myself really quiet in the movie business about it because I was scared that I wasn't going to be hired. And, and my journey with that, and uh, and uh, but there's, um, uh, there's interesting um, how I'm watching, uh, how, how you pitch a project and how you earn that relationship for them to look at your content. And, and that's where I have some really good, it makes me feel really good to say I have some relationships out there that, that uh, have sold a lot of content and I, I feel like they got my back. They're pulling for us to do a project and it's just the timing of it a lot of times. And, uh, but I'm, you know, I feel like I'm just starting out, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm 58 and I just want to, I don't know, there's something about story and there's something about having your iPhone uh, that you can click on and all of a sudden watch that documentary. Uh, and, and it's not local, it's global. It used to be, hey, go to this local film festival and check out my cutting-edge documentary. Now it's, hey, check out Netflix and press play. And then you you you're, you have a global voice. And it's very powerful. And I love early, younger filmmakers, uh, you know, can pick up an iPhone and film. They can write, they, they have a documentary, they have a story. You can do it yourself. You can edit, you can develop that sizzle reel or deck that you could present this story to uh you know it's interesting producing uh producing partners they they have websites and that they'll look at your stuff you know but uh but i, I could go on about that but I, i'm i'm uh i'm excited about the next uh i don't know uh, finishing strong in the industry not finishing but just um, um next chapter right next chapter uh mike app did it was a director uh he did seven up, fourteen up, twenty one up, uh, uh, twenty eight up. Every seven years, he filmed. Yeah, uh, yeah, okay. I, well, I Mike Apted did a lot of James Bond movies. He did a lot of big budget movies, but he always had his documentary going. And uh, that documentary, you know, show me the boy at seven, I'll show you the man. And it, it just it was amazing uh, how that documentary moved me and made me uh, look at my childhood and where I came from and what I went through and how can uh, I use all those feelings into my art and my life. And, um, it's, uh, but I, I love, I love the interview. I love to put the camera on someone and I got to admit, I, uh, I film people a lot of times and they don't know I'm filming them, you know, and, and that's interesting too, of filmmaking, of course, before you use any, you got to get, but there's something about when second you put the camera at eye level, that could change an interview. And uh, I like, sometimes grabbing moments on an iPhone and they don't know I'm in the room or they don't know I'm filming and you get some interesting moments. Oh, we talk about that all the time. We, since starting this podcast, we thought, well, a lot of times the best podcast we could do is the one where none of us actually know that there's a microphone on and we're just having that regular editorial meeting because that's where the best conversations happen a lot of times. So, yeah, yeah, there's, there's something about real life that's very, very appealing to be a fly on the wall for if you can capture Well, it. even in writing, like I saw some with uh, Ben Affleck on Goodwill hunting how they wrote goodwill hunting and they just got together and just talked and recorded their conversations and it's interesting about um uh, uh different ways of creating and, and being an artist and uh that um authenticity of uh, of moments and being able to document it and then sculpt it into a story i'm bigger on the documentary than i am and i like narrative films but i i, I this doc documentary world really really intrigues me any particular subjects that you love the idea of approaching from a documentary film angle that you hadn't had a chance to tackle yet? Is there a subject well, or a topic out there you'd love to love to try and tackle story to tell? Well, I'm uh, well. One thing I love the content I have on Coach Burtman just because it's over five year period of ups and downs and going to a movie with them. We're going to Avatar next week, uh, put a little GoPro on the windshield and just film him after the movie and have him talk about the movie. It's just interesting. I'm watching him and I'm going, God, this is so interesting. Uh, but I, I look at the stories that I want to dive into that I'm dove into. Uh, 
but I'm also, I'm interested in the stories that are out there that you can hear people come up and tell you, I got something. So now that's kind of when I shake people's hand and they ask me what's going on. I go, Hey, I'm looking for some stories too. If you have something, I'd love to hear about it, you know, and being open to not just what my POV of life is, uh, what your POV of life is and what you experience could very well be pitched as maybe a one-off uh, 90-minute documentary, or it could be a type of docu-series. And um, it's just interesting with with crews now and how you can film something like that. Very exciting. Well, I think we are about to run out of time, but wow, um, I feel like we could sit here and talk about this for hours, like we kind of did last time. Um, I know that you could probably tell a lot more stories. Is there anything that we need to that we want to land on. You know, I um, uh, I, I'd like to touch on my son just acting. My son's fourteen. I that you would. Well, I, I do because uh, it's my son, and uh, I don't know. I've just been able to watch him go on a movie set this past a year and a half and do four movies, and and he can go to wrestling and he can go do his homework, and uh, I just like the fact that it's not he doesn't have to move out to California. You know, he he's here and he's got a uh, quality of life and uh, you can tape an audition. And it's just been as a parent, it's been a huge joy for me to watch our how different our personalities are. When I go on the set, I'm high strung and I'm pacing in the trailer, waiting for the A.D. to come get me. And my son's just kind of cool, calm and collected. And and he goes, Pop, I got this. Don't worry about it. And I'm like, come on, really? And so it's it's a, it's a fun time for me. Uh, it's different. Uh, because we're just going to an LSU sporting event and then we're just doing an audition and then he's going to the set and uh, it's just, it's, it's cool. It's part of his regular day to day. It's, it's normal. Well, I guess he's grown up around it, right? So, I mean, in a part of that, it's probably a yeah. fairly comfortable environment for him. Well, when he was four or five, and I got a quick story, is when I first showed him Spider-Man and me playing the carjacker and he was sitting on the couch watching it and then he looked at me come on screen with the blonde hair and the gun he looked at the on the tv then he looked at me and then <laughs> he looked at the tv then he looked at me and he couldn't believe it and he goes papa you know so it's a, now he's 14 and he's taller than me and he's going to you know he played uh, john wilkes booth uh, the young booth and it's coming out on uh, apple it drops on apple and he play it's called the uh, manhunt it's about uh, uh john wilkes booth uh uh, uh Abraham Lincoln as assassin and, of Abraham Lincoln right. and, and the flashbacks of him in as playing young Booth so that was really great for him to go to oh, Georgia and do that yeah, yeah it was really cool so what other roles has he taken on he did the movie with crossover LeBron James produced it he just did a movie called Nickel Boys uh, another film and then he did an independent film where he got a sad card on his first project uh, um, uh and I just went blank on that. So. Sag card already, but, though. That's impressive. Runs in the family, oh, clearly. Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. Man, he goes up to Perkins Row and flashes that uh, Sag card, <laughs> and you get you get two or four free tickets you get when you. Free? Oh, really? so he's, you know, he's bringing his eighth, eighth grade friends to the movie. He's kind of cool. <laughs> oh, I bet he is the coolest eighth yeah. grader. Absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming in um, and talking to us again and sharing a little bit more um, with our audience. Uh, I, I was, whenever we started this podcast, I was like, this man is a great storyteller and has an endless trove of stories. So uh, we knew we had to bring you I, on. I, I do want to end with something. Uh, yeah. I really appreciate the time. Uh, if uh, I feel like I have some other folks out there that I'd love for you guys to interview uh, uh, in the different departments. You know, uh, that camera guy, I'd love for, you know, like, I don't know his name, but I could get to him. But I think about other people that have done very well in other departments. And I always, um, I always encourage uh, people to, if they, want to get in the movie business uh that that no matter what their parents are telling them that they can go to a movie set and be a production assistant and get on or even an extra and and just be on a set and uh there's a way through novak and things here in louisiana that if you find a department a lot of people don't know exactly what they want to do but uh I just love to see someone make a living in the industry and of industry that I love and the opportunity now it's all right here. Uh, and then once you get in, you find your strength of what you really want to do. And, and I also love the creative side of the iPhone now and what you can do, uh, 
on your own on a very, very low budget to have like an acting reel or uh, a director reel. Uh, here's what I shot with my family and it's 10 minutes, but it's got a lot of heart and passion and music. And um, so I, I guess I'm ending on if, if that's something that they want to dive into the movie business uh, to at least be able to experience it firsthand and kind of put your fingertips on it and see if it's something that uh, you want to do. And then I'm, I'll do say what Coach Bertman told me, find great mentors in coaching and they're out there that'll help you along the way. But there's something about a work ethic and showing up and and uh, just, I don't know, it's just about giving 110% and going, okay, I'm going to do this. And sometimes you're not going to get paid for that and you need to be okay with that, you know. So the moral of the story is that maybe – if to, to get where you want to go, sometimes you've just got to lie in the <laughs> Yeah, uh, with rain. <laughs> with don't, the rain. Don't be, despri- <laughs> don't, don't be surprised if it's rain. And, and it doesn't pay any more money, by the way. Fair enough. Pop, thank you so much for taking the time James, to talk to us. This has thanks been a, a lot. I, I, with your accent, I feel like I'm in the actor's uh, workshop or actor's <laughs> studio. Uh, but I, uh, <laughs> Literally, it is my only qualification. <laughs> but I, I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun, and, uh, and thank you for having me. And uh, go Tigers. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, and if you're still with us at this point, we're going to assume that you do. Please subscribe to Detours, give us a rating, and maybe even send it to a friend. And if you're not already reading Country Roads magazine, you probably should be. To read online, find a copy, or subscribe to have the monthly issues delivered to your door, visit countryroadsmag.com. Detours is written, presented, and produced by us, the editorial team at Country Roads Magazine, James Fox-Smith, Jordan LaHaye-Fontenot, and Alexandra Kenner. Our theme music was written and recorded by Bill Daniel and Sam Shaheen of Naughty Professor and produced by Bill Daniel at Wild Child Studios in New Orleans. The Detours logo and other associated artwork was created by Country Roads Magazine's creative director, Courtney Zimmerman. And the audio editing for this season was done by me, Jordan Lange with the help from Alexandra Kinnan and Sam Shaheen. We'd also like to thank the East Baton Rouge Parish Library's River Center branch, particularly Wesley Morgan, for allowing us to utilize the recording studio in their maker's space to record several episodes for this first season and for helping us along the way. So, until our next detour, don't be a stranger. You can always reach us at detours at countryroadsmag.com. And thanks for listening.